What is up you guys, Sideline Statsman here, and welcome to today's episode of the Pigskin Pulpit. This is part four of our draft week special brought to you by yours truly, the Sideline Statsman. On this episode, we'll be going through our three segments, including news of the day, rumor mill, and story time. For our first segment, news of the day, you will be hearing about Indianapolis signing free agent tight end Trey Burton and Percy Harvin's decision to come out of retirement after four years at the age of 31. In the rumor mill segment, you will hear about the Dolphins attempting to trade with the Lions to receive the number three overall pick, all while still holding on to their number five pick in the draft. Can they pull it off? And finally, for the story time segment, the main event the Sebastian Janikowski story. We will be telling this story about 20 years ago when the Raiders decided to take him with their first round pick as much of a surprise to everyone in the league. We're going to talk about what led up to that decision, why the decision was made, and how it really panned out for the Oakland Raiders in the long run. So, without further ado, let's get it started. Starting off here with our first story of the day. Percy Harvin is coming out of retirement. Yes, indeed. Percy Harvin, the wide receiver who is well known for playing on the Seattle Seahawks and the Buffalo Bills before his retirement back in 2016. He has decided to come out of retirement and play once again in the NFL. He retired at the age of 28 back in 2016 due to reasons where he had lost his energy that he once had when he was younger and when he first came in the league. Now, during those four years, he has rediscovered that energy and kept himself in shape, to which he has said he's in the greatest shape of his life. Being in the greatest shape of his life and fixing his mindset has led to his decision to come back. However, he is 31 years old, and by the time the season begins once again, he will be 32. So what could this mean for teams around the league? Let's see. There are three teams who are most likely to go for a receiver like Percy Harvin. He was a big, deep threat and widely used in screen sets when they needed a quick, speedy receiver. Harvin is most likely to be pursued by the San Francisco 49ers, Denver Broncos, and Philadelphia Eagles. The 49ers are likely to go after Harvin simply for the reason that Harvin brings talent to the table that the 49ers just do not have. Debo Samuel is great talent and worthy of being there on that team. But he's a slot receiver, not really a deep threat. And their other main receivers, Marquise Goodwin, who they have on the trading block right now. They trade him, they need a replacement. Percy Harvin could be that replacement. He would work well in a wide receiver one, wide receiver two spot, depending on how it goes. It all comes down to what the 49ers ultimately decide. The next team up is the Denver Broncos, and the reason why the Broncos are going to want him is because Cortland Sutton cannot do it on his own. Cortland Sutton needs some help. It can't be him and Deshaun Hamilton doing all the work. Adding Percy Harvin to the other side of the field helps the Broncos and Drew Locke succeed on offense. Opens up more opportunities for them to succeed. And finally, the Philadelphia Eagles would benefit from having Percy Harvin because of injuries that are plaguing their receivers that led to problems last season, where practice squad receivers had to be used, and simply because there's a chance that Percy Harvin could have more value to the team 
than Deshaun Jackson. And I know it's hard to believe that, but again, Deshaun Jackson has been unable to stay healthy in the last two seasons. Since he joined Tampa Bay, he could not stay healthy and have steady production. It would make sense to sign Percy Harvin to work alongside Alshon Jeffrey. So those are the three teams to watch out for and Percy Harvin. Moving on to the next story, Trey Burton is signing with the Indianapolis Colts. Burton was released a few days ago by the Chicago Bears to open up some space and cap for them. However, Burton is signing on a one-year contract that has a minimum value to it. And the reason why is because he is still owed $4 million by the Bears. So the Bears still have to pay him $4 million even though he's not on the roster, simply because they decided to release him. He will work well with Jack Doyle and Mo Cox in that tight end group over in, with the Indianapolis Colts, and I expect some greatness to come out of it. All in all, it's going to give Phillip Rivers another strong wideout to consider to throw to in certain situations, especially on crossing patterns. I can see Trey Burton working really well that way and in trick plays. Don't forget Philly Philly. He just adds depth and is just a strong receiving tight end. Not as much a blocker, but he's a strong receiving tight end that I think deserves a lot more credit. Moving on to the next segment now, Rumor Mill. In the Rumor Mill, we're going over one story itself, which is the Miami Dolphins. The Dolphins are attempting to trade up to the third pick without losing their fifth pick. The team currently holding the third pick is the Detroit Lions, and you're asking my opinion whether or not to believe it. I do believe it, and the reason why I believe it is simple terms. I believe it because this is what the Dolphins do. The Dolphins have so many picks on hand that they can get anything they want. However, trying to keep the fifth pick going to be pretty hard to do. You want to have that pick. I get it. But the Lions will not take a trade unless they get the fifth pick. You cannot offer them a later first round because they want a high first round pick. They don't want to have to lose that. They don't want to trade down too far. And the other two picks you have are farther down the board than they want. So you have to give them the fifth pick plus an extra one in the first round. Or give them one pick in the first and one pick in the second. That would be the ideal situation here. Because... Even though it's just two picks, it changes the, the entire future of the draft right there within those picks. I do believe the Dolphins are going to try it, but I do not believe that the that it's going to happen. The Dolphins, I, I believe the fact that they're trying to make this trade, but they just, I don't, I think it's unlikely that they're going to be able to pull it off. It takes a lot of work and you'd have to give up more than what you're going to have to offer them. You can't make a trade like that unless you're going to include a player who means a lot to your team. Because that's what the Dolph, that's what the Lions value with that third pick. That third pick means they're giving up their future. Right there. A great franchise guy they're giving up right there at the three spot. So, if I'm the Lions, I'm either getting a value player out of it, or I'm getting that fifth pick no matter what. If I don't get either, I'm not making the trade. And I think the same goes... The Dolphins. They want that third pick, but they don't want to give up too much. And I think that mismatch is going to ruin it. So I don't see the trade happening. Tua Tugavaloa not going there, 
I do believe that. I do believe it won't happen. Because with all the reports I've been reading, it's just growing now, and I just think that Miami Dolphins are going to make a mistake and take Herbert instead. Which they're going to regret. But that's the rumor mill. Which now leads us to the final segment. The final segment is story time. And on this segment for story time, we will be discussing the Sebastian Janikowski story. For those who do not know, Sebastian Seabass Janikowski is one of the most powerful kickers of all time. I have never seen a kicker with the leg that he has, the amount of power behind it. His accuracy was never on top tier, but he was one of the top tier kickers for a long time despite having slight accuracy issues. He made it count when it needed, and he was always there, and he was a symbol of consistency and solidarity for the Oakland Raiders organization. But how did it come to be? It was projected that he was going to be a late-round pick, and everyone believed it. He had issues at Florida State. He only took up football in his senior year at high school. How is it possible that a kicker, also coming from a foreign nation, from Poland, as a senior out of high school to Florida State, for four years as a kicker, how can we expect that kicker to go any higher than a late-round pick, or even undrafted? It's highly unexpected, despite the talent that was there. He had off-the-field issues that deterred teams. But for some reason, the Raiders were attracted. And... With one foul swoop, in the first round, the Raiders took Sebastian Janikowski. Here is the story. It was a breezy, cool Saturday in New York 20 years ago. The best NFL prospects gathered for the NFL draft. This is back in 2000. The biggest day of their football lives included LeVar Arrington. Samuels and Courtney Brown at Madison Square Garden. However, Sebastian Janikowski is nowhere near Madison Square Garden. He is at a golf and country club in Ormond Beach, Florida. The star kicker from Florida State, Janikowski, figures he'll be picked at some point, and he and his agent Paul Healy think Chicago is a team to pick him in the second round. The draft starts at noon, though, and with 10 minutes between every pick, everyone knows there's a marathon ahead. Janikowski's party is organized for late afternoon, so when Healy's phone rings in the middle of the first round, only a handful of people are in the room. Paul? It's Bruce Allen. Healy is stunned to hear the Oakland Raiders executive on the line. I want to talk to you a little bit about Sebastian, Alan says. No one could say that Janikowski's story wasn't compelling. Born in Poland, he became a soccer star as a kid and moved to the United States as a teenager because his dad lived in the U.S. after marrying an American woman. He turned down a contract to play pro soccer in South America after discovering football and took off on that fast rise from there. His talent was undeniable. Healy and Janikowski perk up. The Raiders have the next pick, but they're a little weary. It seems way too early, and 
even more, the Raiders aren't anywhere on their radar. Healy had heard from the Rams, the Chiefs, and definitely the Bears about interest in Janikowski leading up to the draft, but never from Oakland. No calls, no questions, no meetings, nothing. But now Allen is suddenly asking Healy about Janikowski's background and his maturity and whether he could handle playing in the National Football League after some run-ins with the police at Florida State. Healy talks about Janikowski's loyalty and passion. Janikowski then gets on the phone and delivers a couple lines about understanding the importance of doing what's right. The call ends and Allen can't say one way or another if the team will select Janikowski or not. All they can do is stand side by side in front of a TV in the golf course clubhouse and just watch as the clock winds down on the Raiders' pick. Healy fully expects that Allen will call back if the Raiders want to take Janikowski. So he feels a sensation of dread as the seconds tick by and his phone stays quiet. Shoulders slump, heads drop, the mood in the entire room drops. It would have been nice, he thinks. Oh well. Then, Paul Tagliabue steps to the microphone. With the 17th pick of the 2000 NFL Draft, the Oakland Raiders select Sebastian Janikowski, kicker, Florida State. Janikowski is shocked. The first thing he does is run outside, shouting as he races across the tennis courts. Healy is still in shock about what has happened. A kid from Poland who started playing football just four years ago is suddenly the only pure place kicker to be a first-round draft pick in the history of the modern NFL. Healy trots outside and Janikowski turns to him. Hey, he says, his face suddenly thoughtful. Where's Oakland anyway? Understand. This stuff never happens. Throw a dart at a list of the 1,472 players selected in the first round since 1970, and there is a 22% chance that you're going to end up hitting a defensive lineman, a 17% chance you're going to hit an offensive lineman, and a 16% chance you're going to end up with a defensive back. Kickers? Well... According to ESPN stats and information, in the last 50 years, Janikowski joins three punters in making up the one quarter of 1% of first round picks who were specialists. So, for those of us who like to revel in sports eccentricities, the Raiders taking Janikowski first in 2000 is basically our Haley's Comet. Better still, for as bizarre as it was and for as many eye rolls as it caused and has caused since, there is also this inescapable reality. They might have nailed it. Seriously, you can make a not altogether crazy argument that picking Janikowski was one of the best selections the Raiders have ever made. If nothing else, the murkiness of the pick's relative worth only burnishes it as an endearing curiosity, even two decades later. Was it a hit or a miss? A success or a total whiff? It's easy to say, for example, that Cleveland's choice of Courtney Brown with the number one pick, that same year, was a clear miss. 
He had just 17 sacks within five seasons and couldn't even stay on the field most of the time. But pinning a label on Janikowski as a first-rounder is more difficult. And not because Janikowski wasn't a good player. He was. But because even the absolute greatest at his position just don't get drafted when he did. The Raiders have had issues with kicking for the last few years. At the time, John Kingdon, the director of scouting, even said everyone connected to the Raiders was legitimately frustrated by the team's kicking and had been for a while. In 97, Cole Ford made just 59% of his field goals for Oakland. In 1998, Greg Davis made only 63. And in 1999, Michael Husted made just 65% in 13 games and was benched for Joe Nedney, who finished the season for them. Off-the-field issues were the biggest concerns, though. Janikowski hadn't been given a long rope by Florida State coach Bobby Bowden, and the stories weren't hard to find. Missed curfews, bar fights, a charge for attempting to bribe a police officer who was arresting a friend, which left Janikowski facing the possibility of deportation, which he was later cleared of. Davis? Mr. Al Davis? Frankly, just wasn't that concerned. He was all in on Sebastian Janikowski. And the scouts were largely on board too. The only ones who weren't convinced were several of the team's coaches, in particular John Gruden, who had just finished his second season in charge. He wanted to take Sylvester Morris, a wide receiver out of Jackson State. The coach also had some interest in Sean Alexander, the Alabama running back. It was a point of contention with John, absolutely, says Greg Papa, a confidant of Davis's, who was the team's play-by-play broadcaster from 1997 to 2017. He didn't want the kicker. He wanted the receiver. But look at it as the one area he could upgrade the team the most with one acquisition was kicker. It was in his mind for months. I don't think John really had a chance. It helped that Janikowski just felt like a Davis guy. Despite his relative newness to football, Janikowski's size at 6 foot 1 and 260 pounds and his strength gave him the look of a kicking giant. He was a two-time All-American at Florida State, won the award as the nation's top kicker in consecutive seasons, and had such pop that he became known for putting his kickoffs through the uprights at the back of the opposite end zone. Everything about Janikowski's rookie year, though, was tough. He showed up for his workouts after the draft, unable to actually kick because he hurt his ankle playing pickup basketball. Once the season began, he missed 10 of his 32 field goal attempts. He also missed curfew in New Orleans before a game against the Saints, prompting Gruden to quip to Papa on the team bus that Janikowski is kicking for free today. The coach was finding the kicker his entire game check. Even getting Janikowski's contract done proved challenging. Healy recalls going to meeting Allen for their first negotiation about six weeks after the draft, and the two men sat down to talk at a sports bar near the Dallas airport. Suddenly, there was Janikowski's face on every TV screen in the place. He was known for epic nights out with teammates, famously needing stitches in 2001 after passing out and cutting his face at a nightclub. By the finish, after a couple of wake-up calls that included DUI charge, 
and the maturity that comes with marriage and children, he was both the kicker and a living, breathing piece of the Raiders' institutional memory. That is why Janikowski's case is an internet mainstay, debated over and over. He played 17 years for Oakland, but made just one Pro Bowl. He was never a first-team All-Pro, but was the league's most powerful kicker for years. He never led the league in make percentage, but according to Football Reference, he delivered more career value to the team that selected him than all but 10 other players picked in that 2000 first round. He also, and this is no small thing to overlook, became an absolute Raiders icon, a beloved figure for the NFL's most gloriously eccentric fan base, as it endured year after year after year of mediocre football. The coaches cycled through as the losing continued unabated. So what else could the fans do root for the burly, brash kicker who was there through it all and became known for both the 70-yard blasts he routinely kicked during warm-ups and the extended evenings out that he enjoyed at local taverns? In more than 10% of the regular season games, Janikowski played for the Raiders. 29 out of 268 of those games had the team's offense not scoring a touchdown. In 22 of those 29 games, Janikowski scored the Raiders' only points. So what, in the end, do we make of Janikowski, who played one season with Seattle in 2018 before retiring? In some ways, the argument about Janikowski isn't really about him at all. It is about how you feel about the notion that any kicker could ever be considered a first-round success. After all, however amazing a kicker is, he might be on the field for 150 or so of a team's snaps, but during any given season, an offensive lineman by comparison could participate in eight times that many plays, increasing his value simply by sheer use. Was he worth passing on Sean Alexander, who won an MVP? Or Chad Pennington, who went to the Jets right after him? Or, and this is definitely unfair, Tom Brady, who famously lasted until the sixth round himself. What if the Raiders had just stuck with Nedney, who went on to kick quite well in the NFL for 10 more seasons? These are the debates that never end, and in many ways, it couldn't matter less. Davis was happy with the pick, and Amy Trask, who was Oakland's chief executive from 1997 to 2013, says there is no doubt that the Raiders, writ large, were more than satisfied. You know what's funny, she says? My very vivid memory is that as years went on, all of those coaches or anyone around the team who didn't like the pick when we made it were suddenly saying, what a great pick we made. And I would always tell them, hmm, I don't remember you saying we back in 2000. Janikowski, for his part, has little interest in considering the issue. Two decades on, with a wife and three girls, and an aching back that will probably need surgery someday. He just doesn't see the point in worrying about whether he was blessed or cursed when the Raiders took him in the first round. What's the difference, he says, with a wide grin? It sure felt great that day. That story on Sebastian Janikowski just brings to light the idea that anything can happen on draft day. Only Al Davis knew what he was going to do. 
He wanted Janikowski, and he didn't care who had something to say and who disagreed with him. He made the pick himself. If you guys don't know anything that's similar to that, watch the movie Draft Day. If you watch Draft Day, you will see what happens. On Draft Day in that movie, you will see Kevin Costner playing the Browns GM. It simulates a lot of what you're seeing here. Al Davis is the owner, override everyone to make the pick for Sebastian Janikowski. And so they picked Janikowski and took a big risk. You're taking a kicker in the first round. It's unheard of. Nobody gets picked that high as a specialist. It's extremely rare. And so they did it with the risk of a guy who had off-field issues but can kick the ball as far as you need him to. And the first season looked like a bust, but after that, everything is history. He proved to be an icon in the Raiders organization, and from there, he is now part of NFL legend as being the weirdest pick and also one of the most powerful kickers of the modern NFL era. Seabass is an example of shocking situations that could strike at any moment. The moral of the story is never count anything out. Anything can happen on draft day. All it takes is one person to change the fate of an entire franchise. It's one call. One call can change everything. Never forget that. And that's going to do it for us here at the Pigskin Pulpit. I'm your host, the Sideline Statsman. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure to check us out on Twitter at tstatsman and on Instagram at the.sideline.statsman. We'll have another episode out for you tomorrow. But until then, we'll see you next time. Have a great day, everybody.